I remember, not too long ago, I began to dive into the church history. There, I began to find things contrary to what was taught to me while growing up in primary. On one occasion, I read an account that struck me as odd. I brought this account to my dear bishop, and there I told him of my doubts. He looked at me, and with a twinkle in his eye, he said, Tommy, you must know, you must doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Close quote. I looked at him, and with a twinkle in my eye, I told him, why, Bishop, that's complete bullshit. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism. We've got ourselves a brand new president, RFM. Uh, not President Monson, the guy who was just talking, but uh, we've got ourselves a, a new president of the United States. I thought maybe the vaccination didn't go well for President Nelson or something. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, President Monson was back there uh, giving us a little bit of uh, some commentary there at the beginning. How are you doing, RFM? I am doing great. Thank you. And it's so great to be able to play clips from past general conferences. <laughs> Which conference was that one from? I I don't know. But you know something? That guy is amazing who does the voice. But I'll tell you, I don't know how much you practice, but I don't think you practice enough to make bullshit. Sound yeah. like Thomas Monson. Everything else was spot on, but all of a sudden it was like, what? <laughs> yeah. Awesome, awesome. So you're in charge tonight. I've been excited kind of helping you plan this out for the week. Um, and so I've got a bunch of stuff ready for us. Uh, but you want to obviously introduce the topic and get us rolling, my friend. Okay. Well, tonight we're going to be talking about a fireside that was given recently on January 9th, 2021 by... Keith Erickson, E-R-E-K-S-O-N. Now, Keith Erickson is a very significant person in the LDS church, so I have to admit I never heard of him before, but probably most people haven't heard of him before. I don't think he's a general authority. He may even be more important than that in some respects. He is the director of the Church History Library, and as he talks, you find out, we're not going to play clips of this part, but you find out that actually... Uh, the church has a number of vaults in this land and in other lands, apparently. He says some are as small as a broom closet. Others are as big as a hockey rink. And there's a lot of stuff in these vaults that they have. He is one of the three people in the world, apparently, who has access to these vaults. Not even the first presidency, right? Like he has the access and the two guys under him and everybody else has to ask for permission. Yes, and I'm not not making this up. This is something that he mentions yeah. in his uh, his two hour fireside. There's two other people, and they both work for him, right? So yeah. it's really interesting that you have everything the church has uh, that is of any value, and a lot of stuff that strikes me as of little value. But you know, it's it's history. But you've got uh, 30, 29 copies of the Book of Mormon, or original or however many there are, you've got copies of the, the Book of Commandments for crying out loud, which I think he uh, rang in at over a million dollars a copy. Uh, just incredible stuff. But he is 
one of the three people with access to it and the other two work for him. Anyway, it was a listener to this program who brought my attention to this fireside that it was given because it was a seven stake fireside for the youth. And it wasn't in Utah. Um, it was over on the East Coast. And I think it centered in Maryland, though I don't know how how much ground Seven Stakes covers. I understand it covers a lot more ground on the East Coast than it might in Utah. Yeah. And I just, just, FYI, I just posted the link to the video so that folks can listen to the whole thing in their time away from our conversation uh, in all of the places where we're streaming. And so, folks, if you see the Mormon discussion uh, brand sharing a YouTube link, that is the video that RFM is going to be discussing tonight with a little bit of help from me, I hope. Yeah, I hope so, because I went through and I made a bunch of timestamps for the different quotes from this uh, fireside that we want to talk about. And at the end of the fireside, I think it's the state president in Maryland, who seems like a very nice gentleman, um, who says that they're going to have it on YouTube, but only for a brief period of time. It's not meant to be up there indefinitely. So when I found that out, I went ahead and I downloaded a copy of the audio. And then I went looking for it, I think it was yesterday or something, to see if the video was still there. And I couldn't find it the way I'd found it before it was gone. I thought it had been taken down already. And then another listener, you know, thank goodness for my listeners. Another listener uh, said, no, it's over here and sent me a link, which I sent to you. So you've got the, the video link for however long it lasts up there. Yeah, and I got to imagine, RFM, there's a few people at church headquarters who watch us live to keep an eye on what we're talking about. And it wouldn't surprise me if they're right now scrambling behind the scenes to try to reach out to that stake president and have him remove that video uh, while we're talking. That is always in the realm of possibilities. But if that happens, let me just tell you, LDS Church, if that happens, we've already got an MP4 file of that video ready to rock and roll as a backup. So, yeah. so you know, if they want to take it down, they'll slow us down for about 30 seconds, but we'll be right back at it. Well, I hope they'll wait. I hope they wait until I, I hope so too. Until they hear what I have to say about it, because a lot of it's going to be very positive. Good. Uh, so yeah, and I want to start out with the positive stuff. But he's, as I say, the director of the Church History Library. He knows church history inside and out, apparently. And the format for this is a question and answer session with the youth of the church. You can attend by uh, Zoom. I think is how they were probably doing it. But they could type in their questions and just take whatever questions it was they had for him. And I want to give him a lot of credit, Keith Erickson and the state president who set this up, because this did not have all the signs of the phony or staged Q&A that I've seen before with apostles of the church, where it's very clear from what they say beforehand and how they act during it, that these are uh, questions that have been pre-planned and the answers have been pre-planned, at least largely scripted, if not completely scripted as far as the answers go. And so, but what he's doing is he's taking them, he's taking them live and they're just being funneled to him. And everything that he did convinced me of that. So he's very knowledgeable, very intelligent, very enthusiastic, and an entertaining speaker. Um, I don't know if he's GA material, mainly because of the interesting way in which he speaks. But perhaps you can overcome that with a little work. Here's the deal. Um, let me tell you a few things about what it was. Let me go to my notes here, okay? Um, yeah, he starts, the structure of it is he gives a 20-minute talk where he lays out just some thoughts about uh, church history. And we'll come back to that in a second. But after that, he opens it up and he speaks for over an hour uh, answering questions uh, from anybody who wants to ask. Now, there's a very strange thing about this fireside presentation. 
And the reason it's strange is because I don't think I've ever encountered it before. First off, I want to say that he is extremely transparent when it comes to the second part, the, Q the Q and a section of the presentation in the fireside, but he's very transparent. And I want to give a couple of examples of that more transparent. I think than I've ever heard anybody in church leadership, if I can call it that, uh, director of the church history library, that's pretty far up there, but that I've ever heard anybody be, and I wanted to give him a lot of credit for that. The strange thing is that in the 20 minute talk he gives, where he's gonna frame the issues that he's then gonna do Q and A on, where he frames the issues, he's very untransparent. Um, let me put it to you this way. Most apologists that I've encountered and that I used to be, will first off, they'll tell you that they're gonna be transparent. And then they'll spend the rest of the night hiding things and spinning things, right? That's usually how it is. They are transparent in theory. They'll tell you they're going to be transparent. But in practice, in practice, they're anything but transparent. Strangely, Keith Erickson is the opposite. Instead of being transparent in theory and not transparent in practice, the way he answers questions, he is not transparent in theory. And then he's very transparent in the answers to his questions. Um, it ends up being somewhat confusing. And I can only imagine being a youth who is a member of one of these seven stakes and attending this fireside and having this presentation go the way it did. So we'll talk about that. We're actually going to talk a little bit in reverse order. I want to talk about some of the things that he was very transparent about. And it surprised me. And I think it will surprise you. And I want to give him two thumbs up, way up, for being so transparent. First off, it is usually a surprise to people who don't know church history, and that would probably include most members of the church, and certainly I would expect the youth, to find out that when Utah entered the, well, they entered the United States um, as a territory, they became a territory of the United States, that they entered as a slave territory. And that's kind of surprising because that's not something you hear about much in the church. We hear a lot today about uh, don't be racist and we need to repent of our racism. We don't hear a lot about Utah being a slave territory. And yet he just comes out and says it. By the way, nobody's asking him this question. Nobody's saying, uh, is it true that Utah was a slave territory? No, he's just doing this on his own. He is being very transparent. And this is in the Q&A. This is in the practice part, the second part of his talk. And this was in audio clip 133. Point four five. I'm. You have the notes that I sent you, Bill. Do you have? Yeah, that yeah. I've got this. We're ready to rock and roll, my friend. So this is just one minute. One thirty three forty five to one thirty four forty five, and that's supposed to mean an hour and thirty three minutes at the forty five second mark. Um, but you probably figured that out. Okay. Yeah. So I want to see this. Go ahead. Announced Brigham Young was speaking to the territorial legislature. They were they were writing the Constitution for the for Utah Territory. And they were debating whether there would be slavery in the territory or not. Um, and they ultimately, uh, this is something people don't know, they allowed slavery in the territory. They wrote it in the Constitution in 1850 that slavery, slavery was allowed in Utah. And slavery was not abolished in Utah until 1862, the Emancipation Proclamation. Abraham Lincoln abolished slavery in all of the places that were that were occupied by the Union Army. And so Utah, as an occupied territory, 
that's when slavery was abolished. And so that was. So yeah. So, so that's one of the places. And I think he's given a little bit of history. Uh, he's talking about the priesthood ban, I think there, which makes sense, but you don't have to say that. I mean, you don't have to say that it's an apologist. And in fact, most apologists that I know would avoid saying it because you don't need to bring up any issues that aren't already there. So I wanted to give him credit for that, for mentioning the fact that Utah was a slave territory from 1850. And they wrote it into their constitution when he says they talk about the Mormons because they're the only ones there writing constitutions. And, uh, and <laughs> no, but, but there might have been another person or two there, but they weren't allowed to be very involved. I know I almost said they were the only people there, but obviously there are Native Americans right. there. But they're the only people there writing constitution. And, and a few non-member spouses with no influence at all, right? Right, right. So, uh, and it's not abolished until Abraham Lincoln does the Emancipation Proclamation, and that's yeah. what abolishes it in all the territories, including Utah. So that's one. Now, another thing that most people don't know about has to do with the word of wisdom. And that has to do with the fact that we all know that, uh, you know, you're not supposed to be drinking alcohol and a bunch of other things, but you're not supposed to be drinking alcohol. And that's something that's really on the kid's radar. And so uh, they have to go in at least once a year on their birthdays for an interview with the bishop. And he asks them questions. You follow the word of wisdom. OK, you're not, you know, drinking a little bit on the side here, uh, not uh, dipping into the sacramental wine. Of course, we don't have sacramental wine, but we used to have sacramental wine. OK. And that's one thing that most Mormons have no idea. And they have no idea how long it lasted that we had sacramental wine. And that's something that Keith Erickson mentions in his fireside. Once again, he doesn't have to do this. This is uh, at the one hour mark in the 38 seconds. And this is a little bit less than a minute. Do you have that one? Uh, let's see, because I don't think that's this one. Um one minute, 30, I mean, one hour and then 38 seconds. Give me two seconds and I will come up with it. I know you can do this. You're I amazing. Can. So we're going to do the one hour. I don't see that one on your list, but um, I can make it. Yeah, if you look under, <laughs> I can point it out to you. It's even highlighted, but there's a number of them that are highlighted. All right. Give me the timestamp again. One hour, even, and then 38 seconds after that. All right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Here we go. Okay. Here it is. Uh, make it big oh, by screen. The way, by the way, he's talking about the different things that they um, they find, like he's in, uh, talking about St. George and the Tabernacle there, and there's some renovation they did recently. And they went into the cornerstone uh, because they put some things in there, you know, as a time capsule. And he talks about what was contained in the cornerstone. And that's where he gets to the wine part. All right. So here is that clip. We redid the Tabernacle in St. George. And in southern Utah, they grew grapes because it was warm enough there, and they made wine. Uh, why? Because the Doctrine and Covenants told them in section uh, 29 uh, to make your own wine for the sacrament. And so they used wine into the 1880s. But so when they were making the uh, St. George Tabernacle in the 1870s. Okay. Oh, you're muted. Uh, can you keep going a little bit further? Because he mentions that they put two bottles of wine in this time capsule. You'll just have to tell me when these clips end. I, I can't see the closing timestamps. I've got I'll, I'll give you one of these. Okay. Seven, be like in the temple. They put into the little time capsule two bottles of Dixie wine. Well, that turns out to be a really bad way to save historical documents because the corks rotted 
And then all the wine poured out in the capsule. And so everything uh, was disintegrated in wine. So we opened up that time capsule and it was just like uh, powder. So uh, there we go. Okay. I don't mean to be taking you back to the temple with those gestures, Bill, or anything like that. Let me, that just I'll, means cut. It just means I'll, cut. I'll tell you my new name. Are you ready? No. no I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, Rumpelstiltskin. Oh, that's a good one. It's something about saying it three times and something happens. I don't know what it is. Or maybe it's saying it backward. But that's not the only thing he talks about with wine because there is a story in church history that nobody knows about in the church. Um, and when I say nobody, I mean virtually nobody. I hadn't heard about it until a few years ago. And that is has to do with the last day of Joseph Smith's life. Have you you've heard that story? I'm sure, Bill. Uh, yeah, there at Carthage, I've got a couple death masks here in the uh, in the family pawn of Hiram and Joseph. Yeah, yeah, a it's got the, uh, just a well a pair of Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith. With Hiram's got the gauze in his nose because yeah. he had the sh the wound in, so they had to stuff it before they put a plaster of Paris on his face. But uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, they're killing time, uh, reading from the Book of Mormon, right? Like Elder Holland tells us when he held up the Book of Mormon General Conference and said it's here, the page is still bent. Yeah, the but, very corner of the page turned down. Yeah, but one of the things he didn't mention was what they were doing, like right around the same time that they're reading, maybe at the same time, yeah. they're reading from the Book of Mormon. They're having, Joseph Smith is having a little refreshment. And Keith Erickson, to his credit, he doesn't have to mention this, but he, he tells the story. And this... This. Do you have this one ready to go, Bill? What's the timestamp on this one? This is at the um, the two hour and one minute mark. You got the two hours, right. one minute and 11 seconds. And this is just about half a minute. Counts where uh, Joseph drank wine. Uh, there was one time on Christmas Eve when they had a celebration and he drank wine. Actually, the very la the, the day he was murdered, one of the last things he did, they put their money together and ordered a bottle of wine uh, and drank. So uh, there were people that were consuming uh, these products uh, occasionally. Now, when the saints crossed the plain. There you go. He is just, I mean, he's letting all these cats out of the bag. And I want to give him credit for that because I think it's great that he's actually teaching the youth about church history. And, you know, he's not just saying the cats, right? I mean, he's talking about a lot of other things as well, things that maybe um, are not quite so surprising, or I would expect to be so surprising to most adult members, not to mention the youth, but he's mentioning these things as well. So um, now I have to talk about, so I've tried to talk about the good things, the things I saw in this fireside that I thought were really good. They weren't wearing their garments at Carthage either, right? Like they took when their was. garments off. Uh, Joseph, Joseph or Hiram? Neither of those. Yeah, neither of those guys. Willard Richards and John Taylor. Nope, just Willard Richards, I believe. Which who hid behind the door with his cane, beating off the attackers. Well, I okay. Look, now you're getting me. I'm going to start talking like Keith Erickson about church history. No, <laughs> I mean these things are long johns. They're modified long johns, and it is late June, and it's with the back annoying. pocket and the buttons. Just the back pocket. Can you imagine if you had Taco Bell and you're trying to get those buttons undone? I mean, that would be. <laughs> Well, this is why the Saints chose not to go to Texas to relocate. That's right. Okay. They went west to Utah, so they wouldn't have that problem. Anyway, no, my understanding is is that my understanding is that um, uh, no, Joseph was not wearing them because they're too freaking hot, and so it was same with Hiram and same with John Taylor. The one person who was wearing them 
uh, was uh, Willard Richards. Unscathed. Who was the one who escaped unscathed, even though bullets were flying around him like nobody's business. And he doesn't get hurt. And I think that it is largely because of that story that the second story <laughs> uh, arose about the supernatural protection that is provided for those who wear garments. And that I think Brigham Young said something about Joseph Smith and Hiram and dang it, they weren't wearing their garments. Otherwise they might've survived something like that. Yeah. But uh, So that's a, that's a, another little detour, but church history is a very fun thing. No, he's not whitewashing the history. And I think that is cool. So here's the, here's the thing that I want to mention. Now we go from what I think is good to what I think is not so good. And I, I'm just super positive about the answers that he gave to the questions. The thing that I'm not so thrilled about and that I find problems with is in this 20-minute preface that he gives to answering the questions. I mentioned that in answering the questions, he's very transparent in his practice, but he's not very transparent in his theory because what he wants to do is he wants to talk about criticisms of the church and basically categorize them into three groups. And the first group, the first group is criticisms of the church, he says, are basically things that may be true, but they have been distorted by using weird words to describe what it is that they're talking about. And it's a strange thing, uh, mainly because I haven't seen it for decades, but I'm going to, and he gives a couple of weird examples and I'll let him go ahead and speak in his own words. So you can hear what it is I'm talking about. Oh, now, yeah. uh, Ooh, sorry about that. Go ahead. You already have that. Uh, uh, is it like got... 19 minutes and something? Let's see. It's 1936. 19... And this is 1936 to 2202. All right. Let me uh, put that up on the screen. And it'll be just a couple seconds early here starting. Whatever you, you encounter it. Uh, and so just be uh, prepared. That's, that's, the, that's the answer. There's not really a way to run and hide and say, I don't want to talk about something tough from church history. The answer is, uh, no, I know there's tough stuff. So let's talk about it. Let's be ready. That's good. But now he goes into this other part, which is uh, strange to me. Oh, you want to hear some more of him from that oh, section? Yeah, after 2202. Run and hide and say, I don't want to talk about something tough from church history. The answer is, uh, no, I know there's tough stuff. So let's talk about it. Let's be ready. So let me give you kind of a, a few ideas about this. There, there are three things that antagonists do with church history. And you may not know every single factoid that there is. I don't. Uh, I'm not Wikipedia. Uh, but but you, you can recognize when uh, antagonists do these things. The first one is they'll, they'll make it seem weird. They'll say, hey, here's something really weird. Did you know this? The way they do that is they take true things, accurate things, they take them out of context, they twist them around, they distort them, and they make them seem weird. So uh, let me let me show you how easy this is to do. Uh, here's one. Uh, did you know that the Book of Mormon talks about magic rocks? Okay, that's weird. You're saying, well, I, I've read the Book of Mormon. How many, how many critics of the church have that as the thing they're talking about, RFM? Not many, but it's interesting because it's almost like he's eliding the magic rocks that people do have an issue with, by uh, which is the, those, the ones are, they were used to interpret or translate yeah. the Book of Mormon. Yeah. He's going to talk about magic rocks and the narrative of the Book of Mormon instead. Maybe it's yeah. safer. I'm not sure. 
Mormon. I don't think uh, I know. I don't think that's in there. Well, there is a story where the brother of Jared asks the Lord to touch stones and they glow. So I can take that fact out of context and make it seem weird that Mormons believe in magic rocks. Okay, uh, here's another one. Did you know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call us all Mormons because that's what they'll call you in the locker room. Uh, so did you know that Mormon kids, when they grow up, in order to become adults in the Mormon faith, they have to go through a cosplay ritual where they dress up like dead people and suffer. How many times have you heard critics frame it that way? I have never heard. We'll get we'll get to the surprise of, of what he's talking about here in a second. But I've never ever heard anybody have any issue uh, theologically with what he's talking about. Cosplay, uh, cosplay rituals where they dress up like dead people and suffer. Did you know that? Mormon kids have to do that. Actually, that one's not very uh, very twisted. That's uh, Trek. We do make kids dress up like dead people uh, and suffer on Trek. So. I thought he was talking about the temple. <laughs> okay, I'll continue here. Uh, all right. You get what I'm saying. It's pretty okay. easy to take something, twist it around, make it seem creepy. And the, the solution there is to say, you're going to feel it in your gut before, you know, you may not know the facts, but you're going to say, they're making this sound creepy. And that's the first warning sign. Second warning sign is that. Okay, so he's about to go to the second warning sign. Now, this is so odd. I mean, can you imagine uh, juxtaposing the transparency of the Q&A se session with how he's framing it at the outset? He's talking about this is what antagonists do. He doesn't say anti-Mormons, but he says antagonists. This is what they do. They do three things, and this is the first thing they do. They, do. they take things that are totally normal, totally unobjectionable, like Trek or uh, the stones in the Book of Mormon. The Lord touches them, makes them glow. And they, they, they frame them in ways that are like derogatory or weird. And that makes you feel weird as a, a young member of the church. And so you feeling weird about how it is they're explaining this is the first sign that you know that it's a distortion. And I'm trying to boil it down because I think that's really what he's getting at. Anytime you feel weird, i.e. bad, i.e. troubled about what it is they're saying, well, it's a distortion of the truth. So that's the first yeah. point he's making, I think. And just to note, RFM, that he's using really weak examples. He's not giving the audience the hard stuff. So by using the weak examples, he's setting up his audience to go, these aren't serious botherings. These aren't serious things to be bothering me. These, these aren't things I really need to be that worried about. This is all of that. And you and I talked multiple times off the air about the old evangelical anti-Mormonism and all the arguments of, you know, Jesus wasn't born in uh, Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem and all those arguments that you and I were like, knock out of the park, super easy. He's setting up his audience to think of the criticisms as weak sauce and not to be major issues. When in reality, the major issues are just that they're serious detriments to faith. Well, yeah. And especially because he doesn't give any real world examples. In other words, he doesn't quote any antagonists of the church. Uh, and mainly because I don't think there are any. Um, I'm not encyclopedic in my knowledge of what people have written about the church, but what he's talking about does sound reminiscent, but you have to go back like to the seventies and eighties with Ed Decker and the God makers where he does kind of this, where he describes the Mormon God as a 
humanoid extraterrestrial from planet Kolob. Yeah. You remember that? Yeah. yeah. And, and just to point out, as Kurt here is messaging on, uh, on the comments there, straw men are easy to tear down. It's exactly what he did. He built a couple of straw men. They're easy to knock down. And then his audience thinks that all the problems are easy to solve. Yeah, they're so easy to knock down. He doesn't even have to knock them down. No. I mean, yeah, exactly. I think that's a good point. And the other thing that he does is that he first off, we'll get to the other two, which are kind of similar to number one. But there's a couple of places where he undercuts his argument because he's already identified as things that make you feel weird or sound weird as being distortions. But notice what he says about plural marriage. He talks about plural marriage and why was it kept a secret is the question. Um, if you can go to audio clip. Now, this is going to be the one hour and 13 minute mark. Okay. Yeah. And 46 seconds. So 1.13.46. And this is going to be less than a minute. But notice what he says about plural marriage. All right. So here we go. That is this clip here, I believe. Yeah. Uh, why was early plural marriage uh, hidden? So uh, there are a couple of uh, reasons that helped uh, to make sense of this. Uh, no, first, uh, it was really, really different from all of the other kinds of people practicing marriage in the United States. This was not a common thing. You know, sometimes when people find weird things in our history, they say, well, that's because those people were a product of their time. Th that is not the case with plural marriage. People in the 1840s were not practicing plural marriage. The saints were really, really weird to do this. And so that okay. was one part. Of it. That's it. That's the part right there. Because now he's in the Q&A part. In the first part, he identifies if something sounds weird, then that's your first clue that it's a distortion. But now he's talking about church history in answer to a question. He's talking about polygamy and why it was hidden. And he talks about it not once but twice. And he says it was really weird. Right. Right. So he's essentially going against the very thing he said and setting up counterexamples that then prove his original statement to be not true. Yeah, I think you put that beautifully. If I'm going to say that if you hear something that sounds weird, it's a distortion from the antagonist of the church. And then you start answering questions and you say, hey, this was really weird what happened in church history. It does seem to be undercutting your thesis. I agree. This isn't the only place he does this. There's another place he does this. Um and this is where he talks about one of the collections that they have in the church library and the anti-Mormon literature that they collect and put in there. Um, let me see here if I can find this. Um, oh, hang on a second here. Actually, that may be later. Let's just go ahead and we'll go in order, okay? Let's go to number two. Number two that he talks about which is number one is if you hear something, it sounds weird. And number two is like, if there's a bunch of weird things all together, but this is in the audio clip 22.02. And this is for less than a minute as well. And if you listen really closely here, you'll hear an oblique reference to whom I believe is Jeremy Reynolds 22.02. Yeah, here we go. With one creepy thing, they're going to pile it up. Well, there's this creepy thing and this creepy thing. You can find websites, you can find people who, who pretend they're writing a letter and they'll list a whole long thing and they want to pile it up. And they think that uh, if they pile up a really big list of creepy distorted things, that somehow that is meaningful, but it's not, it's just a pile of things that they've distorted. Now it doesn't make it true that you have more distorted things. 
It just means uh, they've distorted lots of things. So when you see them say, wait a minute, you know, I don't, uh, I can already tell uh, where you're going. Uh, what, what did you do? So there we go. Now he's about to go to the third thing. So what he's saying now is once again, you know, number one is to hear something is weird. It's distorted. And number two is if you got a bunch of weird things, then you know that they're distorted. I think that logically speaking, if, if you have a, a, something that's distorted and not true, then just because you have a bunch of things that are distorted, and not true, don't make the first one any stronger, if you know what I mean. So I think that logically speaking, it's true. But what it's assuming is that everything that's in there is something that is already distorted and untrue. Um, the, the flip side of that, the flip side of that, the logical flip side of that is that what you're saying is, is that the more arguments there are against my position, the more likely my position is to be true. Ooh, yeah. So, so if you can come with 3000 things against my argument, it's my arguments even more true than it was when there was one thing. Exactly. It grows exponentially in its truthfulness by the number of arguments against it. That seems highly logical. Thank I think you, Spock God. would be proud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So, um, oh, and did you want to mention that, that really brief little, uh, mention he makes in there, by the way, it goes by so quickly and you can actually find it. I think I found, uh, where is that? A bunch of weird things. Um, it's 2212. 22.12 is where he just does that really quick thing. And I'll let you comment about that. Someone pretending like they're writing a letter. People who, who pretend they're writing a letter and they'll list a whole long thing and they want to pile it up. And they think that uh, if they pile up a really big list of creepy, distorted things, that somehow that is meaningful. Yeah. So essentially here, the idea of just making it up, like writing a letter as if he's making it up to somebody, right? Like he's just pretending you're writing a letter. And this is what, this is really interesting because uh, people have accused Kwaku and uh, uh, the Ellis guy. I can't remember the other, what his full name was. There's Brad Card Cardinellis. Cardinellis, yeah. Yeah, Cardinellis. In their videos with Fair Mormon, there is this accusation that Jeremy Runnels is making up the idea that there was a CES director and he's writing to this guy or a CES teacher and he's writing to this guy and that person never got back to him. And so hence he put his uh, document into a letter that he now publishes to the general public. And the argument is that there really wasn't ever a CES guy. And John DeLynn, uh, Jeremy Runnels went to John DeLynn and Jim Bennett and said, would you two mind meeting me? and sitting down with all of my emails from the past and verifying that there indeed was a CES person, director, uh, who was given an opportunity to answer Jeremy's questions and never responded. And Jeremy, out of being just the kind, good man that he is, has never revealed that person's name. And to his credit. And so it leaves room for people to say, you're, you're lying, it's not true. And the reality is both John DeLynn and Jim Bennett have verified that the emails are real. They are from the right time period. They are addressed to a CES uh, worker and that that person never responded back to Jeremy's questions. So this guy is talking about Runnels. It's pretty obvious if you understand the outside of the church view of these things and understand the timeline of events. And yet he's claiming that Jeremy was lying and it's demonstrable. One of my favorite words, demonstrable at this point that Jeremy Runnels was telling the truth and that by, by continuing that message, this is the guy being deceptive. 
Yeah, it's it's deeply demonstrable, Bill. Deeply demonstrable. <laughs> Two of your favorite words, yeah. back to back. There we go. Um, yeah, and so exactly. Now, if we take that issue about whether he actually wrote a letter, which I understand has been verified, yeah, he actually wrote a letter. Um, it really doesn't make any difference. It's a non sequitur anyway. Yeah. Even if it, he never wrote a letter or just framed this whole thing as a letter and it never happened, that's not important. What's important is what's in the letter. What are the arguments in the letter? Are they distortions? Are they talking about, hey, did you know there's magic rocks in the Book of Mormon? Or do you know there's cosplay ritual for the kids where they dress up like dead people and suffer? I have not read the entire CES letter, but I have read very carefully the chapter on the Book of Abraham. That is a model of clarity. There are no distortions in it that I can see. And I'm pretty familiar with the subject matter. In fact, I was really quite surprised at how unvitriolic, unemotional it was and how factual it was. There's only one place where I had just a little bit of a quibble. And that was where saying something was definite, where it, there might have been a little wiggle room. And I probably would have put a seams in there like, you know, it seems this way. But that's a very small quibble in an entire chapter dealing with a complicated issue like the Book of Abraham. So I'm not seeing the distortions there in that chapter. Um, and I don't think they are there. But I think it's handy to just call them generally distortions in order to try and get people to uh, get off the scent. I think when I've sat back and watched the church frame its history and completely withhold its membership from a thousand stories. In fact, even in this fireside, uh, Erickson tells the story about Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner gathering up the, the book of commandments. I heard that. What he, what he doesn't tell his audience is that Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner is one of the plural wives of Joseph Smith. And that seems like an important data point. The wives of our founder seems like important data points we'd want to talk about in our history. Instead, we tell the story about her as a little girl. What we don't say is that when she's also a little girl, 12 years old, that Joseph Smith approaches her and says, you'll be one of my plural wives someday, and that she actually does end up being one of his plural wives. The kinds of pieces of history that we share and don't share, hold back, give, it's this game that the church and its apologists continually play. These guys, as we've always pointed out, won't sit in a room with you and me and go, all right, deceptions, let's ask some logical questions. Uh, let's take, for instance, the very letter you're talking about and talk about the Book of Abraham chapter. Which deceptions are you speaking of? Because he couldn't field those questions. He would, he, it would fall flat on his face. And this, kind, to be honest, it does get me a little upset. Like I get angry at the fact that the only way belief continues in the Mormon church is if we continually give a one-sided deceptive answer to what the critics are doing and not address the problems honestly, transparently, forthrightly. Um, he's not telling the full story. He's the one who's, who's holding back and being deceptive. It's not Jeremy Runnell's letter. Uh, and there are sections of Jeremy Runnell's work that I'm like, ah, that's not really that strong. That's probably a weaker point. But, the, but he's not lying and he's not making up data. The data is genuine. Um, this guy's being much more deceptive than Jeremy Runnels ever was in his letter. Yeah. Well, I understand that you're upset about it, but like Spock told McCoy once, your emotions will prove your undoing, Doc. <laughs> then they probably will. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, so, so um, now we get to number three, right? And number three is... 
the least defined that uh, he speaks about. And he speaks about it for, oh, what is it, a couple minutes? Yeah, a couple minutes. But he talks about a conspiracy theory. And I think he just really wants to hit this idea of a conspiracy theory because it has such negative connotations to it. You know, whenever you hear conspiracy theory, you think, ah, well, that's a bunch of hooey. Um, I think based upon this and things he says elsewhere in his talk, I think that what he's getting at is a conspiracy theory that's being alleged by critics of the church on the part of the church to hide things from the members. I think that's what he's getting at. But if you have audio clip, uh, the minute 22, second 43, 22.43, and this will go to 24.53. And if we can listen to him talk about conspiracy theory and see if you can make any more sense of it than I can. Third one, the third warning sign. First one is, here's something weird. Second one is, here's a pile of weird things. The third one is, something dark and mysterious is going on here. It's the conspiracy theory version, right? It's the, why does the church have a vault in the granite mountains? Uh, why why this? What are they hiding? What are they doing? It's the conspiracy theory uh, behind it. Now, conspiracy theories are really uh, interesting, uh, and we're kind of swimming in them right now uh, in American culture. But here's the here's the interesting challenge about a conspiracy theory. So uh, n- number one, they're almost always wrong. I mean, we're talking like 99.9% of the time a conspiracy theory is wrong. When you hear it, you should give, just say uh, that's wrong. But the people who believe conspiracy theories, any evidence that you present to them that says – Uh, No, here's the evidence against what you're saying. What you're saying is stupid, foolish, taken out of context. Um, Any evidence you present (laughs) turns into, oh, you're part of the cover-up. So it becomes this this enclosed loop. You can't inject any accurate information into their brain because their brain is closed in a circle. And the conspiracy theory has closed that brain that says, anything I encounter is either proof of my conspiracy theory or if it contradicts my conspiracy theory, it's proof that they're trying to cover it up, which becomes proof of my conspiracy theory. And so their, their brain is closed. And that's where antagonists want you to go. They want you to close your brain with this uh, conspiracy theory. Now, closing your brain is a problem because the Holy Ghost speaks to our mind and our hearts. And so if we allow conspiracy theories to close our minds, we're cutting off our communication with God. Uh, why would you want to do that? especially at this time in the world. We need to be communicating with God. So those are the warning signs. Um, Here's something weird. Here's a pile of weird things, and something dark and creepy uh, connects them. Okay, so now now he's going to go on to other things. Um, At at that last part... Didn't he kind of describe him and the rest of the church? I know, but he described Mormons. Anytime something's brought to me, like, that can't be true. That's got to be anti-Mormon material. You're taking it out of context. You're, you're, not, you're not being honest about that. That's fake news. That's not trustworthy. That's, I, I can only trust the prophet. I can only trust the information that comes from the inside. It, uh, it reminds me a lot. Um, see if I can find it here really quick. Um Maybe I won't be able. Here we go. Should be a lot like this one. So I start out with an assumption that the Book of Abraham and the Book of Mormon and anything else, excuse me, that we get from uh, the restored gospel is true. Therefore, 
any evidence I find, I will try and fit into that paradigm. I don't feel that I need to defend that paradigm. I feel that I want to understand the evidence that I find within that paradigm because to me it's a given that it's true. There are others who will assume that it's not true, and on these points we'll just have to agree to disagree, but we will understand one another better when we understand how our beginning assumptions uh, color the way we, we filter all of the evidence that we find. Is that not circular reasoning? Is that not the very thing that Erickson was talking about? I don't think it's the critic. Yes. Now, again, some critics, I think, do get stuck in spaces that aren't viable or not true. They, they will argue points that their data really doesn't make that conclusion. For instance, sure. the, the Spalding manuscript, which I think is just worn out. Um, but I think for the most part, what he just described is Mormons inside the church when they're confronted with contradictory information. By the way, for those who don't know, that was Carrie Muelstein, uh, noted LDS Egyptologist. Egyptologist, professional, college-educated, yeah. degree-holding, on-the-wall Egyptologist. Yep. yep, who starts with the assumption the book of Abraham's true, and every piece of evidence he sees, he's going to fit into that paradigm. Come hell or come high water. No matter if it's a round peg in a square hole, and most of it is. Yeah. Oh, let me see here. There's something else. Oh, yeah. The other thing that was really interesting about this is that here you've got um, Brother Erickson, Keith Erickson, giving this talk about number three in his list, right, which really seems to undercut his first two points, because he's saying that, you know, conspiracy theory is, you know, uh, people get locked into these conspiracy theories. And whatever you say, whatever you say is either evidence of their conspiracy theory, or you're in on the conspiracy. Well, from the LDS point of view, I think the conspiracy is, is that the antagonists, there are critics out there, and all they're trying to do is take you away from the church. And therefore, any other criticisms are going to be either distortions, or they're going to be lots of distortions. Those are the two categories in number one and number two. There's nothing about something that's true. You notice in his list. There's nothing in it that's factual. They are distortions. And so it sounds like uh, one of the viable definitions of conspiracy theory is a persecution complex where you believe you have the truth and therefore you've got to label anything that counters that uh, belief as a distortion uh, made by antagonists. So this is one of the ironies I see here. And once again, are you getting this feeling that this juxtaposition that I'm encountering with Keith Erickson, because it sounds like the Keith Erickson who gave this part of the talk at the beginning is a completely different Keith Erickson than the one who's answering questions and being so transparent later on. Yeah. And, and I, I just want to note that if you look at high demand fundamentalist religion specifically, but really any religious narrative in the same way that a conspiracy theory works and gets followers and gains traction, also the religious myths of high demand fundamentalist religions gather traction in very much the same way. You say somebody saw something, you say that your evidence for that thing is super strong, you get people to feel really excited about the information you're sharing, and the, the, it gains traction among a small segment of society who believe that you have the truth while the rest of the world is ignorant and naive and turning uh, its nose up at it. In reality, that's the exact same way that conspiracy theories work too. Right. So going back to this conspiracy theory, why I interpret it is mainly meaning the, this idea that the church is hiding things. If you can go back and just play this little clip where he talks about 
like uh, people say the church is hiding things in a vault. Um, and that is in 2253 to 2307. It's in those 14 seconds right there. 2253 to 2307. This was in the clip you just played. but So the third one, the third warning sign, something weird. Second was here. Something dark and mysterious is going on here. It's the conspiracy theory version, right? It's the why does the church have a vault in the Granite Mountains? Uh, why Why this? What are they hiding? What are they doing? Right there. Right there. It was that part right there that certainly caught my attention. Because, Bill, look, I joined the church in 1978. I think everybody knows that by now, right? It was quite a while ago. And I was very, very interested in defending the church, finding out what the arguments were, for, were against it in order so I could defend it. And I heard this rumor whispered very early on that the church has a vault and they have this vault so they can hide things in the vault. And the things they hide in the vault are things that they want to keep from the members knowledge, because if the members knew about it, then they would find out, Hey, this isn't all it's cracked up to be. In other words, it's damaging stuff and documents and information that's hidden in this vault. And it's a very, you know, romantic rumor that of course, I don't know anything about a vault. I know, all I know is I hear the rumors and probably not long after that, I heard somebody at church, maybe some church leader, local or general, assure me and everybody else that they're not hiding anything from anybody. And I thought, well, OK, well, that takes care of that issue because these guys are, you know, they're followers of Jesus Christ. They know they got to tell the truth, nothing but the truth. And if they're telling me they're not hiding anything, then there is no fault. Right. And there's that damn gospel principles book that all of us were raised on that has a chapter on honesty. And it says that even when you withhold information, not that you're lying blatantly, but when you withhold information from the audience, whoever the person is that's being spoken to by you, that you are deceiving and hence you are being dishonest or lying. Right. And so he mentions this here, like this is the conspiracy that people think, well, they have a vault. What are they hiding in there? I, I've learned a lot about this church and I got to tell you, it wasn't until five years ago that I found out about this whole Joseph Fielding Smith hiding the 1832 account of the first vision in his safe yeah. for three decades yeah. so that nobody could find it. Nobody could see it. Not even yeah. uh, other uh, general authorities, if he could help it. And, yeah. and that's when I went, I mean, this is 2016. I'm finding out about this. I go, you got to be kidding me. That whole rumor that I heard when I was a teenager about a safe that they hide stuff in, that was true. Yeah. yeah, it was true. And they also had the seer stone in there. Seer stone was in there. And they're still lying today. First off, I just want to note, somebody's asking, who is this guy? You're probably joining us late. This is Keith Erickson, who is the head guy of the church history uh, vault. He's the director uh, of the church history library. Thank you. But he is in charge of the vault where all the stuff gets kept. Him and two guys underneath him are the only three guys who can walk in and out of there by putting whatever bio rhythm out, you know, thing they've got device for a handprint or eyeball or whatever it is. Um, he gets in his two other guys get in that are underneath him. Everybody else, including the top 15 has to ask for permission. This is the guy who watches over all the things that are in the vault. And as you're pointing out, the church does hide stuff. It had the 1832 account of the first vision. Uh, there's some talk about the 18th. You're, you're muted. There's some talk about the 1835 account on whether that was, you mentioned the seer stones and they're still hiding things today. We were talking this week off the air, William Clayton's journal is still in there. They just in the past uh, 24 months released the Council of 50 Minutes. And 
and there's a lot of damaging stuff inside that, the church is still holding on to things it doesn't want you to read or see. Um, I think we have to acknowledge that this is a church that continues to hide things. And you also have the Stephen R. Snow uh, comment about the gospel topic essays being kind of hidden away so that only certain people could find them. Right. And we'll get to that one in a second, because that'll come up when he, when uh, Brother Erickson says something else. But yeah, uh, Brother Eric, Keith Erickson knows about Joseph Fielding Smith hiding this. He's obviously very, very intelligent, well-informed about church history. He knows that Joseph Fielding Smith hid the first, first vision account in his safe, in the vault, for three decades. Okay, he knows this. And yet now he's saying... One of the things that the critics do is they talk about conspiracy theories like you've got a vault. And so what are you hiding in there? Well, he knows what they're hiding in there. I mean, he's the guy who's in charge of the vault. Yes, he knows exactly what they're hiding in there. If anybody knows what's in there, he knows what's in there. And the problem is, is that at this point, since we don't have access and nobody has access unless they go through him or his two employees and ask for access, none of us can tell for certain what it is they're hiding and what they're not. Now it'd be one thing if they had said forever that they had not hidden anything and they weren't found to be lying. Okay. And then maybe we could take their word for it. Right. Tough when you, when you know that uh, the 1832 account of the first vision was hidden in that vault for over three decades and only released when it came to public knowledge, when you know that you have hidden things in the vault and then to be making this argument that he's making I'm disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. These guys have hidden things in the past. They're hiding things in the here and now, and they're going to be hiding stuff from you tomorrow too. Uh, It's going to continue. But they're still trying to disparage this idea that they're hiding things in the vault. Can we go on? Is that okay right now? Yeah, please. Because now he goes on to his next argument, which is basically that all these arguments about Mormonism that the uh, antagonists use, they're just old arguments. You know, they've been around forever. They've been answered a long time ago, so they're not really important. And this is audio clip 24.53 to 25.13. So that's, I think, 20 seconds. Do you have that? I do. Here we go. Now, this isn't new. We have conspiracy theories, weird things, antagonists now, but we've had them in the history of the church from the very beginning. From the very first times that Joseph talked about his first vision, People said, no, you're wrong. That doesn't happen uh, anymore. We've had critics from the very, very beginning. Now, here's something weird, but also true. Oh, oh can you go back? Uh, that was it. The things about critics from the beginning. Let's, uh, you want me to go back, you said? No, no, yeah. Uh, actually, we just went, but it's this idea that, you know, critics from the very beginning, this is all old stuff. This happened a long, long time ago, and these arguments have been around forever, Right. And the idea is that, well, if they've been around forever, then they're not that important. We've dealt with these forever. You're not going to you're not going to hear anything, any anti-Mormon argument that I haven't heard already, which is what he says later on. But first off, not all the criticisms are old. Just as a point of reference, there's something about the Adam Clark Bible commentary that is relatively new as it relates uh, to the uh, Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. Right. So they're not all old and there may be more. I think there is actually, I know there's more information going to come. That's probably going to show that Joseph Smith used the Adam Clark Bible commentary in his translation of the book of Mormon. 
as well. Can I just note, RFM, Matt yes. Allen here is making the comment. This is true, right. by the way. Right. The church hid Ensign Peak from the Quorum of the Twelve. The first presidency knew, but the Quorum of the Twelve was surprised when they learned when that news broke of Ensign Peak and all the investment stuff that was going on. Great um, point. Yeah, they they keep it from their own people. Like the top three, keep it from the quorum of the 12. They have their own secrets that they don't share. I'll bet that they were surprised. And they're saying, what, I'm only taking down 120 grand a year base salary. And you got all this. You know, there were raises given out that January. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I gave up my day job for this. Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, Okay, so but even if they were just old arguments. And talking about the arguments, because some of them are rather long in the tooth. Now, let me just say this, okay? Because saying that because it's old means that it's not important or significant. That's another non sequitur. Just because an argument is not new does not mean that it is not valid. Yeah, the the Egyptologist in 1965 or 67 knew that the book of Abraham was a problem and Egyptologists today still know it's a problem. It doesn't matter how old the argument gets. There's a lot of stuff in Mormonism unveiled from Philastrius Hurlbut that still holds water today. The church likes to, and its apologists like to say, hey, we've responded to those. That's all well and good. Yes, you've responded. They're just not really adequate responses. They don't solve the problem. Right. Just because you respond, it doesn't mean it's adequate. Exactly. Very good. And, and another analogy would be like, you know, a, a flat earther. Somebody believes the earth is flat. Uh, it would be like a flat earther saying that there's no new evidence. Excuse me. There's there's no new evidence against their theory that the earth is flat since John Glenn orbited the planet. And so therefore, it's all old evidence and therefore it's not important evidence. I can go on believing the earth is flat because it's just old news. Joseph Smith can marry a 15 or 16 year old under a lot of pressure, 14 year old too, by the way, but the case is certainly a lot stronger with Lucy Walker in terms of the data. You can highly coerce a 15, 16 year old girl into a relationship with you, depriving her of sleep, imposing that she have a spiritual experience. It doesn't matter if a thousand years go by Lucy Walker is still going to be a problem for, for the church in terms of its truth claims. Yeah, that's yes. Um, if we can go to the next clip, and the next clip is right after 2513. It's what you were almost le- bleeding into when I cut you off of the last one. So if you go to 2513, and then we go from there to 2552, so that's only a l- about 40 seconds, right? This is this is where he once again undercuts his number one point, right? If you hear something that sounds weird. It's weird. It's and it's not true. Immediately after he gets done talking about one, two, and three, now he's going to talk about something that sounds weird and then he's going to talk, but it's, but it's true. Right. And it's about their big collection of anti-Mormon literature in the church library. Do you have that at 2513? Here we go. Now here's something weird, but also true. Now, wait a minute. Hold on a minute. In the church, weird things get dismissed, but here's a weird one. That's true. I'm so confused. Materials. That's right. And we do it because God commanded us to in section 123 of the doctrine and covenants, is the instruction to gather up things that are libelous and nefarious and collect them and publish the truth to the world. And so uh, we've been collecting these things. I have the world's largest collection of anti-Mormon literature in the church history library. 
I'm telling you this for an important reason, because a lot of times when we encounter this kind of information. Oh, by the way, can you cut there? Can you just cut there for a second? So undercutting his argument, I think that's clear. Now, he, when you continue playing, he's going to go back now to his argument that they're old arguments and they don't make any difference because we've got this huge collection of all this anti-Mormon literature. It goes all the way back. It's all old hat. You don't have to be concerned about it. So if you'll continue playing up through 2648. By the way, you and I have got to be in that vault, right? Like our audio has to be in there. If he, if this guy collects all anti-Mormon material, all critical arguments, all the nefarious stuff that's been said about the church, then sure as hell, there's got to be a little Mormon discussion, a little Radio Free Mormon in there. Well, I would hope so, because he <laughs> he's going to mention like Reddit. Uh, he's going to very lightly mention Reddit, YouTube videos, and the CES letter by implication. And all of these things he's going to try and just sort of lump into all this is old hat. It's just it's just the old arguments refurbished now with special effects and put on the Internet. So yeah. if you can keep playing through 2648. And now there's got to be Mormonism live in there. Here we go. With it is to think this is the conspiracy theory part of it. Oh, no. I'm the only one who knows this. I, me and a couple of my hundred friends on Reddit are the only people who know the truth about this thing. Well, I'm telling you, we collect it. I know about it. My staff knows about it. President Nelson knows about it. Uh, you're not going to surprise anyone when you tell us something about our history because these ideas are old. They're worn out. They've gone on and on and on. They started in old-fashioned pamphlets, and now people have transferred them to the Internet, and you can find them in YouTube videos. But that doesn't make them correct. They were wrong 150 years ago, and now they're wrong with uh, special effects in a YouTube video. There you go. So he mentions a couple hundred people that you know on Reddit. Uh, he can't be talking about ex-Mormon Reddit. No, because that's, that's way over he's got to be talking. He's got to be talking about <laughs> Latter-day Saints on Reddit, which I think is only a few hundred people maybe. Oh, right. The um, one, yeah. Yeah. The ex-Mormon Reddit page is grows substantially every day. Um, it, I think it has maybe a faster growth rate and activity rate than the LDS church itself. It does. Absolutely. Percentage wise. Yes. <laughs> and, and when you make an argument like, oh, those guys, there's just a small group of people who think they know something. Well, when you're a uh, 16 million member church with about 4 million active members in a world of about 8 billion people, you're also small potatoes, about a 0.2% of the human population. If you're going to be picking on arguments because only a few people know something. And then he makes the argument, by the way, he hurts. I think he hurts the church in this way. He's acknowledging here that all of the brethren know the issues. He's, they know it. The President Nelson and everybody in the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, they know these things. You're not going to catch them off guard. So these guys can't plead ignorance anymore because guys like Keith Erickson are throwing them under the bus and saying, these guys know all the issues. So you can't say like, oh, I don't really know. Like like uh, Jeffrey R. Holland, when he was interviewed by the BBC, and he goes, I don't, I don't know how the Book of Abraham came to be translated. I just know we have it. Like the reality is they do know the problems. They try to play naive. But as Keith Erickson has just pointed out, they know the problems. Yes. And we're going to go to our, probably our last audio clip here. We're going to have a couple of them. But um, it's 625 now, my time. So is that 725 your time? 725 my time. We've been going for an hour and five minutes strong. Yeah. So we're going to need to, to close this here. There's a little bit more, but we're going to close this here with this. 
uh, because now he's going to mention the church essays. He's going to mention the essays. I, I give him credit again. This is in the question and answer. Is it in the question and answer part? Maybe it's not. It's not yet to the question and answer part. He's going to tell him that if you have issues, then there's a great resource. It's the church essays. He talks about them. That's good. The thing that is funny to me is that he talks about them as if, well, what he does is he, he, I think he's a little sarcastic here in a good natured way. He talks about how they're hidden, right? How the church has hidden this information and where are they hidden it? Well, right on the church's own website, you know, he's like pulling an elder Ballard talking about uh, we've hidden it in the 1970 inside the 1832 account of the first vision at the youth to youth thing. Right. But he does that. And of course you and I know that, yeah, they have hidden it on the church website and they've specifically put it in a place where it's difficult to find. And you and I know that we know people who, even if they're looking for it, they know it exists. They've been told it exists. They go looking for it on the church website. They cannot find these essays because they're so cleverly hidden, at least three clicks deep. You pretty much have to have a map yeah. to be able to get to them. Either that, or you could probably use you can use the search function, but a lot of people don't do that. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, here's how he describes the essays. I give him credit for describing for talking about the essays, but then his his suggestion that this is how transparent the church is being by putting these essays on its own website. That's the part I have trouble with. So this is 2648. To 2815. 2648. Let's grab that. And here should be it. Uh, there are <clears throat> a lot of resources to help you. And I'll share just uh, one example. On your phone, in the Gospel Library app, if you go in there, there's a section called the Restoration and Church History. And there are several things in there <clears throat> that can help you. I'll just call out two. Uh, and this is for the, when you're when you're finding kind of these strange uh, or interesting kind of attack things. One of the things in there is called uh, the Gospel Topics Essays. These are 13 essays that were written a few years ago. They go in depth in the 13 toughest questions that we have in our history. So they're talking about multiple accounts of the first vision. They're talking about Book of Mormon translation. They're talking about plural marriage. Uh, race and racism. They talk about mother in heaven. They're all there. <clears throat> they're in your. They're in the app. Uh, people will come up to me and say, "Why is the church hiding such and such?" And I'll say, "You're right. We are hiding it." Call out your phone. Open the Gospel Library app. Here's a section you've never gone to. That's where we're hiding it. That's one of the best places to hide things from church members. Is right in the Gospel Library app. We used to hide them in handbooks because nobody read handbooks. Not everybody had the handbook or had access to it. And they didn't have them in the handbooks. No. The essays or anything no. like them. No. Okay, so anyway, that's that's the end of that part where uh, I'm glad he's mentioning the essays, telling them how to get there. I understand from a commenter that it's easier to access now through these apps. Um, and so that's all good. But I think he's being facetious uh, when he's saying, you know, we're hiding it right here in the, the church website. Um and the gospel library app, a place where nobody goes because that's the best place to hide something from members of the church. I, I'm not sure where he's joking and where he's being uh, serious, but I, I think that he's being more correct when he's uh, joking in this yeah. particular part. Um, and, and, and we know from the former church historian or director of the church historian's office, whatever they want to call it, um, because they changed that after Leonard Arrington, I think. Uh, Elder Snow, 
Elder Snow actually talked about the rollout of the essays because it happened when he was the church historian. And he specifically said, what, Bill? Well, let's just play it here. Okay. Um, because I think that what he says is, yeah, we, we, we put it in a certain place so that people really couldn't find it. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, so, but I know that the sound bites somewhere towards the middle. So here we go. Share them with your friends. Uh, Talking about the essays. The process of letting uh, uh, leaders, stake presidents, and bishops know about them so they can be a resource in the event some of their uh, members are having questions or challenges about those uh, issues. Uh, Book of Abraham essay was just released in July. Uh, hey, Bill, of, of Bill? Yeah. Just, just, uh, can you go down here halfway through the second big paragraph where it says, so I don't think you are going to see a well-publicized campaign. Let me uh, Yeah, I was playing the sound. Do you not want that? Well, it's just going to take him a while to get to the part I'm interested in. I got you. Let me. Uh, okay. So you just want to see the text then? Uh, yeah. And if you can find that, this is oh. where he says, so I don't think you are going to see a well-publicized campaign to tell you to go to these sites. But we just, you know, the people that are interested seem to kind of pass the word amongst themselves. And the only other thing is that leaders now will have access to them, except most leaders didn't know they existed either. Um, and I think the long, probably the greatest long-term benefit will be, these are answers that have been vetted by the, reviewed by the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency, and they have signed off on these answers. So basically what he's saying there, as I understand it is, you're not going to see a well-publicized campaign and we're not going to announce them and people who are interested can pass the word along. So these are going to be a secret. We're not going to let, uh, we're not going to put them on the, the front, uh, the homepage of the church website. They never announced it. They never put any there. They're three clicks deep. And if you really need to find them, then hopefully somebody will tell somebody, will tell somebody uh, that they're there and how to get there. And then maybe they'll be of help to you. But they were put there specifically to not be read. Yeah. And we should add that Stephen Snow is on the record in one other place as well. This is with uh, Blair Hodges, who I think still does, but at least at the time was handling the podcast for the Maxwell Institute. And he, and this is Stephen Snow uh, I think he was the assistant, maybe church historian at the time, uh, or he had just replaced, looks like maybe up above, he just replaced Marlon Jensen as the church historian. It, and this is his words. He says, my view is that being open about our history solves a whole lot more problems than it creates. We might not have all the answers, but if we are open and we now have pretty remarkable transparency, then I think in the long run that will serve us well. I think in the past there was a tendency to keep a lot of the records closed or at least not give access to information. That's the definition of hiding stuff is not giving people access to know what something is. But the world has changed in the last generation with access to information on the internet. We, can, can, we can't continue that pattern. I think we need to continue to be more open. In other words, we're still hiding stuff and we could even be better at it. Yeah, better at being more transparent. Yes, absolutely. And so that is uh, Elder Snow, who I think is sort of, contradicting what it is that Keith Erickson is trying to imply in this fireside. Now, there was other stuff that we had to go into, and we don't have time for it tonight. There's not a whole lot left, but it would take uh, 10 or 15 minutes to deal with it, and I want to be sensitive to everybody's time and leave time for phone calls. Yeah. By the way, if you're not already, please queue up with your phone. Do you have that yeah, number there, Bill? Yeah, yeah. Don't forget, uh, it is 435 
two double zero fist. Don't forget the fist. Double zero fist. Fist. Exactly. I like it. Two double O fist. Yeah. So, so as people are uh, rushing to their phones right now, um, let me say that uh, next week we're going to do a part two on this. And if we want to, maybe we can talk about a couple of those other things. But there's actually something that's even crazier to me about this whole situation with Brother Erickson. And that is not only is he the director of the LDS Church History Library, one of three human beings on the planet with access to the vault, he is also an expert. <laughs> you're on not believe, yeah, I was going to say, you're not going to believe this, audience. He's an he expert on hoaxes. An expert on hoaxes. Let me see if I can pull something up here. Was this the introduction? What are, you, what are you pulling up? Oh, I was just going to pull up his uh, how to detect how to detect a hoax oh. here. Let me. No, no. Can we just say that for next week? No, no. I just wanted to show people just a screenshot and let them get a little chuckle. Here's Keith Erickson. Oh, he is the world-renowned expert on hoaxes. Um, this is the guy who knows how to tell bullshit from the truth, and uh, and I t- honestly i I can't even move past this inside my head, um, other than to keep giggling inside my brain. It's an amazing thing. So what we're going to do is I've, I've read through that. It's not that long. It's on his blog. And hopefully you've saved a copy of that, Bill, because that might be vanishing very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I haven't saved We're not hiding anything. Nothing enough. vanishes in this church. But uh, no, he's got uh, uh, two articles on his blog. One is identifying hoax, a hoax, and the other one's analyzing. And you're not going to believe what entity and its narrative would fit so well into the ways he tells you how to discover a hoax. And, and to discern a hoax from the truth, which things would fit a hoax, which entity and its historical narrative might fit a lot of those uh, qualifiers. Hmm. Yeah. It's just amazing to me. Uh, I think it's a fascinating psychological study. It could be a thesis all on its own yeah. about a lack of self-awareness uh, where this person is so interested in hoaxes that he writes articles about how to detect them. And yet, at one and the same time, he's giving firesides to the youth on church history as the director of the church history library. Yeah. Folks, if you want to pick up your cell phone or your landline, if you're still using it. In fact, I think our first call is coming in right now. Well, good, because we're going to be doing that next week. Next week. That'll be a lot of fun. We'll be able to talk about how to identify a hoax and whether it has any application whatsoever to the LDS church. And Bill is uh, screening that call right now. All right, RFM. So we have Rick. Rick's our first call tonight. Rick, you are on Mormonism Live with RFM and Bill Real. Uh, what are you thinking in terms of Keith Erickson and the, the church history department here? Okay, first of all, um, I'm really enjoying the, uh, the uh, format and enjoying all of your work. Uh, but my question is, are, is he really a neo-apologist? This just seems to be more of the same. I thought the neo-apologists were guys like Terrell Gibbons and maybe Richard Bushman who are really going to a much more of an allegorical, uh, you know, much more of an approach of taking the stories, you know, less literally. This seems to be just more of the same. Yeah, I'm going to let Bill answer this because I'm the one who uh, used that word. It's his fault. It's It's my fault. fault. I'm going to hang up with you and I'll address that. (laughs) So I think when I use the term neo-apologist, I think two things are happening. One is there is a much more compassionate approach to the doubter. You grant like, hey, things are messy. 
things don't add up exactly. We're really sorry they don't. We just need to be more honest with you. But the second part of a neo-apologist is some degree of transparency where we don't play the old apologetic games, but we start to acknowledge like, oh, there are some issues out here. And let me start talking honestly about church history. And I think that Keith Erickson is kind of a middleman between kind of a Dan Peterson and a Patrick Mason. He's acknowledging, as RFM pointed out in the beginning of the episode, some of the messiness in our history. He's being more transparent than I think an apologist would choose to be in the old school where we only deal with what you're asking. We're not going to add extra details in that are messy. We're only going to deal with the knowledge base you come to the conversation with, and we're going to pose answers that really don't work. I don't see this guy as trying to fix the questions. He's still withholding things, but there are degrees of honesty in his conversation that I would start to nudge him as better than Dan uh, Peterson, better than uh, Fair Mormon, um, but still also kind of holding back and being a little bit of that old school as well. And I think Rick's question, by the way, I was saying it was your fault and I'm pointing the wrong way. Uh, I was saying it was your fault because uh, what we decided was when we announced this, that um, uh, we weren't going to specifically say exactly what it was we're talking about, this fireside. Because the thing might have disappeared. If we would have given everybody a week's notice, then this fireside may not have uh, existed for us to use. And so we had to buy you and I some time to get the MP4 file downloaded so that even if they did get rid of it, we'd still have it. Um, We're we're always trying to stay one step ahead of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's not easy staying one step ahead. We don't have $13 million. behind. Well, that's true. You're stepping on my my punchline there. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. It's not easy to stay one step ahead of an organization that's consistently 20 years behind. Thank you. But it is easy to stay behind an organization that has 13 billion dollars to spend. Oh my gosh. 130 billion. Sorry, 130 billion. Just a factor of 10. But anyway, anyway, um, so there's that. And also, what Rick says, uh, I think, helps clarify the the confusion that I have, which is in his 20 minutes. He's a classical apologist, and then in his Q&A, he becomes uh, much more of a neo-apologist. Yeah. And, and he is both, and so that's, yeah. I think that's what's confusing. But I can't help but picture myself as one of these youth who's listening to the fireside and hearing him talk about it. If it makes you feel weird, um, then it's distortion. It's from the antagonist. And then he starts talking about Joseph Smith drinking wine, and he starts talking about uh, polygamy and all these other things, and and. Uh, Utah territory being a slave territory. And I'm going as a kid, boy, that's making me feel weird. But this is a guy who told me that that makes, that means it's distorted. Yeah. When we, we know that when something's weird, it's not true, but let me tell you some weird stuff. That's true. Right. <laughs> this is all, it's all a game and it does lack consistency. Here's David on the phone. Uh, David, you are on live on Mormonism live with RFM and Bill real. Uh, what, what are some of your thoughts tonight? Well, the thing that blew me away in the discussion, is it true that they were hiding the oh, billion dollar, you know, the hundred billion dollar accounts? Oh, what was the name of that? For me, like a lot of the church, yeah. you know, general authorities and all that. That's just. It, it is kind of crazy, isn't it? It is crazy that that gets hidden. But remember, yeah. I think it was Ryan McKnight who. Uh, took the took the the curtain back and showed us that there were multiple agencies all with various names uh all separate from each other so they didn't know about each other and each of these yeah. investment firms were operated by the church they were they were not private individual firms off somewhere they were all church firms 
all with their own little yeah. segment of this uh, money in the cookie jar, not knowing about each other. Um, it, it does. All the data seems to point to a rational argument being that that money was completely hidden. Nobody ever told me, nobody ever told you, right, David? No, I never no. knew anything about it. And uh, if I had still been a member when that came out, I'd have raised hell and gone right back yeah. to my bishop. Uh, can I get David. a on my tithing? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Good luck. David, if it makes you feel any better, Boyd K. Packer didn't know no. about it either. Yeah, because yeah. My, my understanding and yeah, David uh, Packer didn't know about it either. RFM is just letting you know because unfortunately, uh, RFM, we haven't solved this problem yet. But David no. can't hear you. But but President Packer didn't know about Sorry, this David. fund, um, David. Mm. Uh, so there there are lots of secrets kept. Uh, everybody, but they want to keep telling you they've been honest with you and nobody's hiding anything. Um, yeah. Remember when they told us that we had to clean our own church bathrooms because there wasn't enough money now. There's not enough money now to to pay oh, yeah. to pay church janitors to clean the toilet and mop the floor so we fired all those guys and and now we have the members do that meanwhile there's over a hundred billion dollars sitting in funds that could easily yeah. take care of that and feed by the way every LDS starving child in a third world country um thank you David I'm gonna I'm gonna hang up with you here and we'll get to the next call but appreciate oh, the phone call okay. tonight I just want to say one more thing sure please uh, before you do uh, it's good to have another live ex-Mormon call-in show. Yeah. Another one? Uh, used to used to be part of one uh, that a few years back, ex-Mormon Live. Ex-Mormon Live. Okay. Well, there's a little shout-out to ex-Mormon yeah. Live. Uh, we're, but this yeah, is more, it's, yeah. It's not, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we can get it started again. But, yeah. you know, haven't had any shows for, you know, uh, about a year and a half. But, yeah, gotcha. for a couple of years, there was another ex-Mormon Collins show that most people may not be aware of. It, it, I, I'm going to hang up now, David, with you, okay? Okay. Okay, thank you, my friend. Thanks for the call. I, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't imagine they're as, that's as hip as us, though, RFM. Oh, I don't know. They could be easily as hip as I. I mean, you got Kwaku and L and Brad Whitbeck and Cardin Ellis. Those guys are happening. Yeah. Man, I am yeah. stodgy and just uh, not funny at all, not hip. Well, but, but, but I want to tell you that, that, yeah, please. that if you can hear me at least, no, about this whole thing about, you know, 100 billion plus in the account. And, you know, we're making the members, we can't pay janitors, we're making the members clean the, 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 um, the bathrooms. And I'm thinking, my gosh, you know, they could be taking all the toilet paper in every bathroom, in every chapel that this church has in the world and replacing it with $100 bills the members could be using $100 bills to wipe themselves in the bathroom and it, it it'd be fine. We've got that much money and we wouldn't run out, right? You could wipe your ass with hundred dollar bills and we'd never run out. In fact, there's probably more hundred dollar bills tomorrow than there was yesterday, even with every member of the church doing that. Yes. We could uh, keep ourselves all sanitized and nicely fresh and clean just on the interest from that account. Yeah. I, I had uh, him hang up on us. So I'm going to try to, We've got another call here. Like, give me a second. I'll just. Okay. Uh, TC, yeah. you are on the air here with RFM and Bill Real on Mormonism Live. What are your thoughts tonight, TC? So my question is, um, I'm just curious because I feel like the church has to be pretty transparent because of the, uh, you know, internet and everything like that. Yeah. Um, but I'm also wondering, I wonder how much pressure they're feeling because of litigation to be more transparent. I, I, I watched the podcast with, uh, RFM and uh, John Delan about uh, Gaddy versus uh, 
um, COP. And so I'm just curious to think if any of that has any any opinion on it that has any sort of uh, bearing on their being transparent. Perfect. Yeah, let me hang up with you and we'll address that. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. So I think he's hitting on something, which is a lot of these lawsuits depend on whether it can be demonstrated that the church is being dishonest. And as you sat with Dylan and had that conversation and pointed to how these arguments could be better framed, um, it seems like there's plenty of evidence that we're not utilizing as an ex-Mormon community, if somebody wants to put these lawsuits together, to point to the church being dishonest and lying that we're not we're not forming our arguments in I guess in the most efficient way. Um, your thoughts on whether you think RFM that the church is trying to be more honest, at least in part, for one of the reasons of avoiding litigation. My personal opinion is no way, no, no. Transparency doesn't help them in litigation. Hiding things helps them in litigation. That's yeah. my first thought. But I think that the, it is a sufficient reason the mass exodus and hemorrhaging of members at the LDS church is experiencing, especially among the young people since 2010 and even before that. So for the past decade is sufficient reason in and of itself to explain why it is that they're putting these essays out and trying to be more transparent. In other words, I don't think we need an additional reason beyond that to explain why they're doing it. And it just seems to me that uh, I don't really know whether they're uh, trying to uh, be proactive in defending against lawsuits. My my take on their mentality is uh, they could not care less. And they think that any lawsuit against the church as a church for doing the things that the church does is not going to go anywhere. And so far they've been right and they may continue to be right. We'll see when the judge finally issues his, his uh, order on the second amended complaint and the motion to dismiss filed by the church on it. Yeah. Um, do but, you know, do, do, are they, did, again, I didn't follow that close enough. I haven't had a chance to go back and listen to it yet. Did they take the advice of the things you guys said in the conversation and are those data points now inserted into the argument? No. Okay. No, the conversation that John DeLynn and the attorney, who's uh, the Kay Burningham, uh, who phoned in in the middle, uh, and I had last Friday is after everything's done as far as this is concerned, at least as far as the motion to dismiss is concerned. So all the briefing had been done. The oral argument was done on January 5th of 2021. So we were just convincing at that point. There was no ability, even if it were desired, and I'm not saying it, it would be necessary or even a good idea to take some of our ideas and put them into the briefing. That's all done. It's the argument's been had and now just waiting for the judge to issue his ruling. Yeah. So um, I've got one more call. I, I, we probably should call this our last call of the night, right? You feel oh, like okay. Sure. We're at 748. So we're, we're coming up on, you know, a little over an hour and a half here by the time we wrap up. Yeah. Um, we have Truth. Truth is our final caller of the night. Truth, you are on the air with RFM and Bill Real on Mormonism Live. Um, last call, my friend. Make it great. What can, we, what can we learn from you and what kind of insights do you have on what we talked about tonight? Well, I had a couple of questions. Uh, one for you, Bill. I listened to the interview that uh, John Dillon did with uh, Jim Bennett, and I wanted to get your perspective on uh, sort of his feedback on his time with you uh, first. And then secondarily, at the end of that interview, he talked about his willingness to read up on Michael Coe and get some additional insights on the Book of Mormon. And since his response to the Book of Abraham was very much influenced by his feelings and uh, uh, experience with the Book of Mormon, 
I'm just curious as to your thoughts and RFM's thoughts on what you think he may find as part of that um, exploration. And then secondarily, if we have time, RFM, I'm interested in a, a BYU PD update. Ooh, love it. Um, perfect. I'll, I'll hang up with him. I'll, I'll be really quick. I think what I did in the interview with Jim Bennett is exactly what Jim Bennett hoped to do in his published document on the CES letter. And so I don't think it's fair that Jim felt misused uh, in our interview when when he went out on the attack on the CES letter and and did so in ways that I think were certainly snarkier and um, maybe less healthy than the conversation that him and I had. So I'm good with stopping that part of the question there. Uh, RFM, do you have any update with us on on the police department stuff? Yes, I published this on my Radio Free Mormon Facebook page. Uh, By the way, have you made the pitch for money this week yet, Bill, or should I? I have not made a pitch for money. I would love if you did that. Yeah, everybody, if you go to Radio... uh, (laughs) Yeah, go to Radio Free Mormon and make a contribution. (laughs) seriously do that no but this is the mormonism live show so if you go to mormonism live and is that dot dot org dot org and hit the um the donate button and then make a a monthly contribution there uh five dollars ten dollars you know we're not proud uh fifteen twenty dollars a month whatever you can afford anything you can contribute would be really really helpful to help allay expenses and yeah. make a little compensation for me and Bill. Yeah. We have an agreement. Uh, it's like 20, 80. I get the 20. Bill gets the 80%. Something and like that, yeah. We haven't actually talked about that, Bill. Would that be a good time for us to discuss the terms of this? We, uh, we, I, think, I think we split the moment of live uh, royalties. I think we both should get a nice, uh, a nice bundle of cash at the end of the year when we're both working on this program. So okay, I'm, so per- I'm, 50, per- 50? I'm perfectly okay with that. Yeah, that's my, that was my intention. So let's do 50, 50. Okay. You heard it here, folks. 50, You're my 50. witnesses. Love it. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I published this, by the way, when, when you said bill that someone was calling truth is calling, by the way, we will take 10%. If you stop paying tithing to the LDS church and you'd like to pay it to Mormonism live, we're not going to tell you no. No, we're not, but we're also <laughs> not going to tell you that it's fire insurance either. No, it's not going to do anything for you other than we'll just continue providing entertainment. And we're not going to tell you that if you can't feed your kids, that you should send in the donation anyway. <laughs> right. And if you right. can't pay your electric bills, make sure you make that donation. Pay Mormonism right. Live first, and then the Lord will feed your children. That's our promise. We're making praise be. with We're going to make that happen. Okay, so getting to this, uh, yeah, you said truth was on the line, and then a guy started talking. I got to tell you, there was a little bit of a shock uh, by me because I guess I just assumed that truth would be a woman. Yeah, no, the the truth is that funny because yeah, I, I really did. I really thought the truth it, would be a woman. That, yeah, but I don't know that that's his real name. I think he just uh, he just created that to to be anonymous. Okay, not that truth is you know solely. I don't funny. think it's Truth Nephi Barlow that was on the phone with us. Is that a person? Uh, it's just, uh, those are a bunch of Mormon names. Oh, okay. Try and Barlow. It's just, we're good. All right. So here's what happened. What happened on my BYU PD update is two thumbs down, way down. And I posted this on my website, uh, my, my website, <laughs> my, my Facebook account, Radio Free Mormon. It's your website though. It's your Facebook account. Okay. Okay. I always, I'm very, really concerned about using improper terminology with technology, technology terminology. Yeah. Cause I'll have to make an apology when I do it wrong. See, so it'd be a technology terminology apology. 
Anyway, uh, so it's, it's, but it is the Facebook account. I don't know IT like Bill knows IT. Anyway, this was posted last week, uh, January 16th, whatever that was. That was four days ago. Maybe it was, anyway, whatever it was. Uh, and I'm just going to read this really quickly because apparently not everybody looks at my Facebook page, so I would encourage you to. Bad news. As most of you know, I have been at the forefront of a legal action to have BYU Police Department make public the communications which appear to have directed them to hide a great deal of information from the public. Information related to the BYU PD criminal investigation of Joseph Bishop. Information that I believe should have been released in response to the, to the media's original public disclosure request for those records, but for some reason was not. I originally appealed the matter to the Utah State Records Committee, which upheld the BYU PD's refusal to provide these communications. I then appealed the matter to the district court in order to allow a sitting judge to review the emails in private and get his opinion on the matter. After briefing was completed and oral argument heard this past week, that'd be last week, the judge has issued his ruling that all of the emails at issue are properly classified as protected by the attorney-client privilege and will not be made public. Where's that wah-wah-wah? Where's that sound effect, Bill? Um... You got to be quick on these. Oh, hold on. Let's try to get here. We go. There we go. And then I said, it has been a long road with a sad, if not entirely unexpected ending. But I have broadcasted about it every step of the way and wanted to let you know the end of the story. I haven't had the time or the heart to broadcast this news, but wanted to let you know just the same. Hence this post. Thank yeah. you for your support. So that's come to an end. I think you pursued that so well. And I think the key in that whole process was this committee, which was essentially, if you go back and listen to that audio, which you shared, that committee essentially said, we're very uncomfortable with what's in these documents, but because it's attorney-client privilege, we can't share them. We can't talk about it. It is protected. But but again, we're uncomfortable. And you heard, I think, two or three of the folks of that committee make a comment along those lines. That is enough to tell you that things are not on the up and up over at uh, over at the church office building and the, and the short little telephone line that runs over to Curtin and McConkie. Right. And the coda on the story is that we already know really everything that we need to know just from the way it's played out. Yeah. We don't need to actually see the emails to know what happened because we what we know happened is that several attorneys who represent BYU, who are actually very high up, which is where all attorneys should be in an organization. Uh, but they're way up there, general counsel, blah, 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 including uh, an outside attorney that they hired to represent BYU as a private institution. They, through emails at least, we don't know the contents of them, but we know that they exist. They communicated to the BYU PD as to how they should respond to the public disclosure re requests they were getting from the media and others, but the media initially about the Joseph Bishop investigation. And then what was originally released was redacted in such a way that no police department acting yeah. on its own in a good right. faith attempt to yeah. follow grandma would have done that. Now that's my opinion. Okay. It would have been absurd. It would have been like, in, like you'd have been like, well, I don't know what's going on here. Why would they cross off everything? Like they would have done what no other police department would have done. 
In my opinion, yeah, because there's a nine-page narrative report. I know you've all heard it before, but it's been a while. Nine-page narrative report. That's all they released was a nine-page narrative report. And they redacted everything on page six. And that's top to bottom. And knowledge of a video, right? Knowledge of the video interview. Except for four words on that page. So everything except for four words, completely redacted. And then um, uh, we found out later that McKenna Denson had written a victim statement that she had submitted to the police, which was part of the file. It was multi-pages. I don't know how many, but it was, it was somewhat long. Mm. And that's where she mentioned meeting with Thomas S. Monson in his office building prior to going back on her mission after she was sent back the first time. So uh, whether that's true is really not material to what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that, she mentions meeting with Thomas S. Monson, who was the president of the church at the time these media requests are being made. And not only do the police not release her statement along with their narrative report when they're responding to this public disclosure request, yeah. they redact the narrative report in such a way as to hide the fact that this victim statement even existed. So not only did they not release the report, they want to hide the fact that it even exists. And they did the exact same kind of thing with the audio tape that the BYU PD did when they went down to Arizona to personally interview slash interrogate uh, Joseph Bishop, where he was living at his home. And they redacted the they didn't release the um, the audio tape uh, until after a whole lot of wrangling. And going up through the Utah, I mean, we had to go up to uh, the Utah Records Committee. And then it was on appeal after that. Because on that one, the Utah Records Committee ruled in our favor. And so we ended up agreeing to certain redactions. And then finally, they released it. But they did not release it up front. And they redacted the police reports to hide the fact that this recording even existed. By the way, this recording, this recording which is about an hour long mentions. And by when I say it mentions, I mean, Joseph Bishop tells the cops that at some point shortly after this happened or alleged was to have happened, whatever he was doing, he was doing something crazy. If not with McKenna Denson, then with other sister missionaries under his uh, presidency at the mission training center back in the early 1980s, 1984. uh, He said that he got a call from, a general authority's office, and that was um, AC, Carlos AC's Carlos office. AC. Yeah, and that was a big, big deal for the church because they were trying to argue that no general authorities knew about this in a timely fashion. And that is what was in his uh, audio taped interview. Something that contradicted that was very bad for the church's case. And then the BYUPD ends up not releasing those in response to the grammar request and then redacting the nine page narrative report to hide the fact that it even exists, just like they did with the McKinnon Denson statement. And that all of that only makes sense if the church is behind the scenes telling the police department how to operate. Well, all I can say is this. Okay. You can say that. And I am not disagreeing with you. Allegedly. I, I, I just put it a different way. All I say is that all of those redactions, number one, are things that I I would never expect a police department to do if yeah. they're acting on their own. Okay. And just trying to follow the grammar rules, which require, you know, 
a certain a great amount of transparency. They can make small redactions to hide the names of victims and yeah. contact information for them yeah. and anything that would let you know who they are. Uh, block those out. But those are relatively small things, not a whole freaking page like on 26. Right. So what it, every single one of those redactions that they did ended up not being something I would see the police do. It doesn't help the police at all in any way. But every one of the redactions ends up benefiting the LDS church. Huh. So huh. that's why, I mean, and there's three of them, right? It's not just one. It's not just two. It's all three. They all go one way on this right. street. And that street leads right to downtown Salt Lake City. Yeah. So the most rational explanation is that it makes the most sense if the church was behind the scenes motivating the police department on how to act. And when you, if you accept that hypothesis, then all of the other data seems to fall right into place. Yeah. So that's why I say that really uh, this lawsuit did reveal that fact about all these emails and all the stuff that I just told you about the emails. We know because of the lawsuit, because uh, a synopsis, not a synopsis, but a, um, a chart containing the emails uh, when they were sent to whom they were sent from whom they were sent and who was CC'd on them was provided to me. And I had to give that back at some point, but um, uh, I had to return that to them, but I was able to see that. And a lot of the arguments were based off that. So we know that much and everything else we know. So really, in my opinion, what else are these emails going to tell us more than what we already know? Yeah. It's nice to have the smoking gun, but there's enough data here to point in a direction. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, another great episode, RFM. Appreciate uh, the chance to, to sit down with you and to do this uh, program, Mormonism Live. Visit the website, everybody, mormonismlive.org. We have a really cool Facebook page, Mormonism Live, where there is now like 290 people uh, participating there. Uh, we, uh, you know, we're, we're sharing this in multiple places, a lot of places in Facebook, uh, YouTube, uh, Periscope and Twitch. Uh, I don't even know what Twitch is, but we're there. We're, we're broadcasting live. Um, anyway, just a lot of fun RFM and, uh, and are we going to pick up a little bit of this next week? You think, or absolutely next week okay. is going to be a part two. We did a part two on yours yeah. with uh, changes to the handbook. Please. I love it. Just- there's so much to talk about. And we still didn't talk about everything we could talk about. Yeah, we're going to talk about the hoax expert. How to spot a hoax. Yeah, how to spot a hoax. This By the great. director of the church uh, history library. Right. Yeah, we're going to go into that. Absolutely. Huh. And we're going to find and learn a whole lot of very interesting things. I'm sure. Awesome. Anything else? Uh, otherwise, uh, we'll, uh, we'll let you guys go, viewers. Yeah, but go donate. Remember, Mormonism Live. Hit that donate button, please. Yeah. It is appreciated. Thank you all for listening and for staying up with us tonight. Yeah. Don't forget what President Packer said. Mormonism live. Better than touching your own little factory.